Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Today in the gospel, we're going to talk about uh, mystery and forgiveness and salvation and the poor souls in purgatory. That's a lot, but it is part of the mystery of why Christ came. What do we mean by mystery? The word mystery comes from this old Sanskrit phrase, mu, which means to put your finger in front of your lips, to be hushed, to be silent. Early on, this word was used to connote wonder and awe, which is always related to the divine. The idea that you can be fascinated and completely drawn in. This is what the true meaning of mystery is. And mystery and holiness are this human experience of the other. So in the Greek version of the New Testament, that's the Koine Greek that the New Testament was originally written on, the word mysterion, which has mu as its root, the word mysterion is found in 27 different places, especially in Paul's writings. The word mysterion in Greek was translated into Latin as sacramentum, of uh, this seal. But it's the understanding that there is something that you can experience that takes you into the divine. So today in Oral Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about the story of Jericho, Jesus' entry into that town, and his encounter with Zacchaeus, who finds salvation, and how the meaning of Zacchaeus' salvation is revealed in the Gospel of Luke. So stay tuned. When talking about religious mystery, there are basically two aspects of it, which I think mostly Christians have experienced. But the, the, in the literature in the world about uh, religious experience, these two Latin phrases come up. Mysterium tremendum and mysterium fascinosum. Maybe you've heard them. The mysterium tremendum is the tremendous mystery. It's the experience of the holy as being ultimately far beyond us, awesome, overwhelming. As the Old Testament says, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The mysterium fascinosum, that is the fascinating mystery, is the experience of the holy as being indescribably near, this deep sense of allurement and intimacy. If you think of your experience of hearing about Jesus in the gospel, there's always these paradoxes, right? God is one, God is three. Um, God is transcendent, God is intimate, uh, imminent. Jesus is human, Jesus is divine. These paradoxes where both poles of the paradox are true, but uh, they just you can't see how they actually go together. But the mystery of re religious experience is the mystery of the encounter with God. And that's really what this story is about, about Zacchaeus encountering Jesus. Zacchaeus gradually awakens to this reality of the gift of being a son of the covenant. He had already had it. He was, had been circumcised. He was a Jew. 
People in town knew him as a public sinner. He's a public sinner because he is Jewish. He's supposed to be following the law, but instead he's a tax collector. Do you remember last week where Jesus holds up the tax collector as the person to be emulated? Um, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am a sinner, as opposed to the Pharisee who does everything right and sees it as his platform to judge everybody else. But this experience that Zacchaeus has is that God dwells with him because literally Jesus is going to come and have dinner with him. Why does Luke tell this story the way that he does? When Jesus turns from the town of Jericho, which is one of the lowest places on earth near the Dead Sea, where he's going to ascend into the mountains to one of the highest places in Israel, which is the Temple of the Mount, um, where the Herodian Temple, the, the second temple is located, the seat of Hashem, the Holy One of Israel. He's going to go from the lowest to the highest, just as he calls people from the depths of sin up to union with God. And it's that Holy Week experience that we're going to see what it means for Jesus to come and be with us. So here's the story about Jesus, the town of Jericho, Zacchaeus, and their dinner together. From Luke chapter 19, At that time, Jesus came to Jericho and intended to pass through the town. Now a man there named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and also a wealthy man, was seeking to see who Jesus was. But he could not see him because of the crowd, for he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When he reached the place, Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down quickly, for today I must stay at your house. And he came down quickly and received him with joy. When they all saw this, they began to grumble, saying, He's gone to stay at the house of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from any one, I shall repay it four times over. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a descendant of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. So let's take a moment and pause before we put this story of Zacchaeus in the context of the Gospel of Luke and ask what it has to offer us as we understand the tremendous and the fascinating mystery of Christ. Let's go back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And remember, the Gospel of Luke is about the mercy of God. And in the beginning, the story is told about the angel who comes to the Virgin Mary. And then she goes and she visits her uh, cousin Elizabeth in the hill country of of Judea. And you remember, Elizabeth has her own news. She's pregnant with John the Baptist. And you recall the same angel that appeared to Mary appeared to um, Elizabeth's husband. And uh, here's what the angel said to Elizabeth's husband in Luke chapter 1, verse 14 to 17. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. You'll be great in the sight of the Lord. You'll drink neither wine nor strong drink. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And you will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. You will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of fathers towards children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to prepare a people fit for the Lord. So think of what John the Baptist's ministry was to do. It was to call sinful Jews to remember their covenant. And then the, the angel goes to Mary, and then Mary goes to Elizabeth. And when John the Baptist leaps for joy in uh, Elizabeth's womb, Mary uh, says the Magnificat, and I'm quoting only part here, in uh, still the first chapter of Luke, verses 50, 50 to 52, talking about our Lord. His mercy is from age to age on those who fear him. He has shown the might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. So think about how that is manifested, where Jesus takes on the Pharisees, who are the rulers, the holiness of Israel, very respected, but Jesus finds Israel's chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, very flawed. But he goes out to find the public sinners like um, like Zacchaeus. And so when John the Baptist is finally born, um, close to the end of chapter 1, after just before verses 76 to 77, his father says, a new child, referring to John, would be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And so that all of the angels work with Mary, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, Jesus in the womb, is always about turning the disobedient to obedience. And so um, what happens is John the Baptist goes preaching and, uh, and baptizing. And so remember what that story was uh, when, we got, when we had the baptism of the Lord to close the Christmas season earlier in this liturgical year. Um, John the Baptist was there baptizing. And then it says in chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he answered them, Stop collecting more than what is prescribed. Think about this as you listen to Zechari the story of Zacchaeus. And then the, the crowds asked John the Baptist, What then should we do? And John the Baptist said, Whoever has two tunics should share with the person who has none. Whoever has food should do likewise. So what's repentance do? Stop your sinning, quit cheating people, and then help the poor share. What does Zacchaeus say that he's going to do? Because Jesus is going to come and dwell in his house. He says, I, if behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor. If I've extorted anything from anyone, I shall repay it four times over. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a descendant of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. So just as Jesus begins the ascent from the lowest point on earth, the Rift Valley, Jericho, to the height where the Temple Mount is, the work of John the Baptist is fulfilled in the image of Zacchaeus, the tax collector who repents. And what happens? Jesus comes to stay with him. Jesus comes to dwell with him. The difference before, for, between forgiveness and salvation is 
the understanding of the mystery of God dwelling with you. You know, throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells different stories about mercy and forgiveness. Remember, the Samaritan chose the mercy on the man in the story of the Good Samaritan. He helps a man who's been afflicted by robbers. In Luke, the story of the prodigal son, the father that welcomes his, uh, his father back. We're going to talk about some more stories in Luke about mercy and forgiveness when we talk about the biblical roots of purgatory. But you have to get the whole narrative arc that's coming up to the story of Zacchaeus, what forgiveness looks like, and then what the cost of forgiveness is. So in just the recent weeks, which have all been about mercy, it's been about the prayer of the widow, right? Who just won't get off the unjust judge's back until she gets what he wants. Jesus says, be persistent. And then the story last week was about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that story well, the Pharisee who does it all right, um, but looks down his nose at everybody. And Jesus is directing his story, he says, to the arrogant, um, the people who despise others. But it's the tax collector that's the example. So within a chapter, he shows the salvation of a tax collector. But there is one story that I also want to bring to your attention from the end of uh, chapter 18, just before we get to the story of Zacchaeus. It's one of the last stories before we get to Zacchaeus. And it's what Mary says that uh, in the Magnificat, if you remember her line about his mercy is from age to age, he's shown might with his arm, he's dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart, he's thrown down the rulers from their thrones. And so think of this story because it's like, keep in mind that first chapter of Luke because that's the gospel of Luke in miniature, exactly what Jesus is going to do. It's the playbook, friends. So chapter 18, verse 24, and this is about riches and renunciation. renunciation. Just after Jesus tells the story of the tax collector and the Pharisees, this is what happens. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is the story of the rich young man that comes up to Jesus, do you remember, and says, you know, I've followed all the Ten Commandments. Uh, what do I do? In the story of Matthew, he's called the rich young man, but in the story of Luke, he's called the rich official. And the problem with him, as you remember, is Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, give everything you have away and come follow me. And uh, this man who wants to be perfect um, just can't cut it. He turns away and goes sadly away. And this is why Jesus says, Jesus looked at him, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who can be saved? And he said, what's impossible for human beings is possible for God. And so the very next story, maybe there's one story in between, is the beginning of Luke 19. And it's the story of Zacchaeus, who is a wealthy man, but he's the bottom of the social totem pole because he's a tax collector. And so uh, when Jesus comes, you remember, he's going to come and stay in this house because Zacchaeus, who is overwhelmed with the tremendous fascination he has with our Lord, 
with this mysterium of fascinating and tremendous. He climbs a tree, and Jesus sees a heart open to himself. And so he says, I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. I'm going to stay with you. Jesus is going to make his dwelling place with him. See, forgiveness is what allows us in our interior life to bring our interior life and our behavior into an orientation where it's no longer an obstacle for us to understand and to do what God asks of us to do. And then God makes his dwelling with us. And that is what the, what the salvation is. It's not a condominium. Salvation isn't, you know, get out of hell. Um, well, yeah, you want to get out of hell. But salvation is dwelling with God. And so since we're going to be celebrating the Feast of All Saints, those who are friends of God, that God dwells with them, we also remember that the next day is the Feast of All Souls. And so I want to take a little time and talk about the mystery of purgatory, God's presence in purgatory, and why we ought to pray for the poor souls in purgatory. Do you remember how the story of Zacchaeus began in chapter 19? Here's the quote. At that time, Jesus came to Jericho and intended to pass through the town. You've heard this phrase before, Jesus intends to pass by. It's when the disciples are in the storm at sea in Luke, and Jesus is walking on the stormy waters. He's going to pass by. It's the story of Elijah hiding in a cleft of the rock on the mountain of the Lord, and the Lord passes by. It's the story of Moses who wants to see the Lord, and the Lord passes by. How do you get God's attention? Well, you have to be attentive yourself. You have to respond to God. Otherwise, God walks by you and you never see it even happening. And so what's the point of forgiveness of sins, turning to the poor, uh, undoing the evil you've done in life through confession and, uh, and, and penance? It's about mercy and transformation. You know, purgatory took a beating during the time of the Reformation, and it was denied by the early reformers under the theory that when you die, you're going to go to heaven or hell because God already knows that. And so it's decided right at that time. But the church has steadfastly maintained that salvation is transformation of the soul. And transformation is about time and grace. God working invisibly in our souls, us responding to God as we're given the wisdom to respond. And so the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that uh, pur purgation is simply part of our journey to God, where we have to unburden ourselves of our sin. I will pay four times over for anyone I've cheated. Live a life of charity. I will give half of my possessions to the poor. So in Zacchaeus, you see repentance of sin and almsgiving to the poor, the two things that Jesus consistently preaches. And then the story of transformation, which is the story of Holy Week, where Jesus goes very passive. And you see in his own disciples the power of grace working to take them from frightened followers to powerful, uh, courageous believers. Well, that transformation is called purgation. 
It purges the soul of all of those things that are not God, to make room for God. And so mercy allows us to participate uh, in this transformation. This idea of purgation, um, and we think of purgatory, which I say starts on this planet, obviously, um, that it really is rooted in the Old Testament, in the book of Maccabees. One of the reasons Martin Luther and the other reformers, John Calvin, Henry VIII, kept the books of Maccabees out is they're actually referred to in the New Testament because uh, the early church and the Jewish people read Maccabees. But the reason Luther was against it because there was prayer for the dead in the book of Maccabees. And so if you remember, one of the popular causes that Luther jumped on to enable the Reformation was the abuse of the sale of indulgences in this early 16th century, uh, which is against canon law. But um, in a corrupt church, corrupt things happen. And so moral corruptions of bishops and priests has really led and to and lit the fire of the Reformation. But here's what 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verse 46 says. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. Uh, Judas had gone into battle with some uh, uh, Jewish stalwarts, Judean stalwarts who had been slain. And when they went to look at their bodies, they were wearing pagan amulets around their neck that were supposed to protect them from uh, evil. And the uh, truth of the matter is they obviously didn't work because they were all killed. But it was also a sin of idol worship. And so that's a pretty serious sin, the most serious sin in ancient Israel. But Judas Maccabeus offered sacrifice on their behalf that God would forgive them uh, for their moment of weakness. And so that is the Old Testament roots of, um, of the prayer for the dead. But it's picked up in several places where Jesus talks about it um, and expands on this whole notion of purgatory. But why is purgatory necessary? Well, remember there's a difference between mortal and venial sin. Mortal sin says you're underwater. Mortal sin says you're out of a relationship of grace with God. You just can't hear each other. God walks by you don't see him. Indifference is at the heart of mortal sin. Venial sin are all of those paper cuts that lessen our love of God and neighbor and our own interior chaos. Venial sin can be addressed in purgatory. And so grave sin denies us communion with God, but venial sin entails this unhealthy attachment to things, to stuff, to creatures, which must be purified either, either here on earth through acts of penance, say not eating fish on Fridays, 52 weeks a year, or after death in a state that we call purgatory. You have to overcome your attachments to sin to have a place where God can dwell within you. So the purification frees one from temporal punishment of sin, but you still have to have this change of heart that makes it possible for God to dwell in your heart. And so where is this in uh, the Old Testament? Well, it's in the book of Maccabees. Uh, even Jewish rabbis commented on it. There's a rabbi, uh, his name is Rabbi Yos. You can look him up on Wikipedia from 
uh, the middle of the second century A.D. And Yost said, at the judgment, those altogether righteous shall not be put through a purgatory. Those altogether wicked shall not be put through a purgatory. Who then will be put through a purgatory? Those betwixt and between. The school of Shammai says, those betwixt and between shall go down into Gehenna, be purged there, be singed, and come up therefrom, as it is said. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. And that's the Abath de Rabbi Nathan by the Rabbi Yos. But there was at least one strain of rabbinic thought coming out of the second century. That is how we would think of a purgatory. But it's in the other Gospels. For instance, it's in the Gospel of according to St. Matthew in chapter 5, verses 21 to 25, where Jesus talks and says, You have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever says recall to his brother shall be liable to the council. And whoever says fool shall be liable to the Gehenna of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you're on the road with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Amen, I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. So what prison is he talking about? Purgatory. You find it again in chapter 18 of Matthew with a similar story. In Luke, you find the story, and you might remember this from a few weeks ago. Jesus said, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Then Jesus says these four categories. Listen to this. Blessed is that servant whom this master, when he comes, will find so doing. Amen, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And then, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will punish him and put him in with the unfaithful. And then the third category. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not make ready or act according to his will shall receive a severe beating. But the fourth category he did not, who did not know and did what, des, what deserved a beating shall receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And of him to whom men commit much, they will demand the more. So you clean up your act on earth, you're rewarded with heaven, the life of the saint. And then basically three categories of people who just have outrageous behavior, people who have kind of negligent or sloppy behavior, and then the ignorant. Um, they all get something different. So that purgatory is basically adjusted um, towards the needs of the soul, an act of grace to prepare us for heaven. The idea of the Reformation, 
that no change is really required magically. You just show up in heaven. This is not the view of the New Testament. And if you think there's no purgatory, that when you die, you go to heaven or hell, uh, you just can't make sense of Matthew or Luke or Jesus's parables about the return of the master and the prisons and the punishment. So what's the point of it all? Well, the long witness of the Old and New Testament is God chastises those he loves. And you've all experienced it in your conscience where you beat yourself up over things that you've done. Uh, Jesus is not going to have some angel hold you while another pummels your abdomen. It's about that interior experience. And then you have to be just like the sinner who recognizes that you are in the lowest place of earth. Jesus is calling you to a higher place. You have to be like the sinner that says, if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay them back fourfold. You have to be like the sinner when the light comes on, you say, I'm going to take care of the poor because this is what's called me to be. So what's the thing, one of the things that you can do? You know, a spiritual work of mercy is prayer for the dead. So I invite you over this, these feasts of all saints and all souls uh, to maybe bring a picture of the ones you love, your family and friends, bring them to St. Mark's Parish, put them on the side altars, and we'll remember all of those people at Mass. Come to Mass on All Souls Day. Pray for those who have lost. Offer prayers every day for your parents and the people you love. This bond of love, this bond of prayer is a bond of love. It doesn't make God more loving or God more merciful because God is love and mercy. But there is something about the communion of the saints, about recognizing that each of us are intimately connected to one another. John Donne, an English uh, preacher who was raised Catholic, left the faiths, and then became an Anglican preacher, but he did not leave his Catholicism far behind. And one of his homilies on death said, no man is an island, each is a part of the main. And then he concluded, we are all part of each other. I participate in the common humanity. This is the prayer for the dead, especially for those who have no one to pray for them. And so friends, this has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic. If you believe I deserve it, give me a thumbs up, maybe encourage someone else to listen. God bless you and enjoy uh, all saints and all souls. <laughs>